gives me great pleasure to have Professor Tim Ingold on today's show. One of the really funny things for me was in mentioning to a few people that I was about to have him on or had recently interviewed him, the sense of awe and respect that people have for Professor Ingold is, is quite amazing, but thoroughly well deserved. If you have not come across his work yet in the field of anthropology, um, I was actually joking with him before we, we started the interview formally to say that, you know, you are seen as a rock star within the anthropology field. And, and those of us that know his work will, will understand where that comes from. He is uh, prolific. He is um, one of the most respected academics within many fields, let alone the anthropological field. And also someone that is very focused on being able to put out very complicated and nuanced ideas in a very, very accessible way. So during the conversation, which touches on things like you know, the interrelationship between different narratives, um, looking at things in how we transverse through them rather than just looking at them separately, you know, he uses very simple analogies to, to draw out the real wisdom of what these ideas kind of present. Um, so it was very exciting to be able to sit down and have this conversation with him. Uh, I think there's going to be a huge amount that people are going to gain from listening to his thoughts. And join me at the end where I'll be sharing with you what it prompted for me. And you can jump onto the, the website where we've got show notes looking at you to his work and you can have conversations on there as well. So it gives me huge, huge pleasure to introduce this conversation that I had with Professor Tim Ingle. Hi Tim, thank you so much for, for joining me and um, wanting to have a conversation about you know, your background in, in crafts and anthropology. Um, firstly, how are you doing today? How's the, the weather up in Scotland? It's clearing, it was a bit grey this morning, but the sun is trying to come out. We've had some beautiful weather, yes. like, like everybody else. It's been a lovely spring and the birds are singing their heart out and with the lockdown, it, although we live well, we're only about five minutes' walk from the centre of the city. It feels like we're in the countryside. Yeah, you know? everything that's going on at the minute is a very different feel. But yes, the weather-wise, up until two days ago, it was shorts and T-shirts. Now it's jumpers and, and coffee for more than flavour. <laughs> it's now just genuine yeah. survival and warmth, you know? Um, so, I mean, your work has, has been recommended so many times by so many different people. Um, and having looked into your work, it's been such an eye-opening experience for me, I have to say. Um, coming from a craft background and, and actually one of the, the chapters that really made me smile the first time I saw it was where you're talking about hand axes uh, and you've got one of John Lord's hand axes who was you've got it there fantastic well John Lord was uh, the person who originally started teaching me how to flip now um, All right. Okay. and he said, he said three incredibly kind insightful things what he said after watching me hit this piece of flint for hours well done, Paul, that's really good, which it wasn't, but it just shows you how nice he is. Um, but he said, when you're napping, you are in the same mindset as your ancestors, which was incredibly profound for me. And the other was that when you find these things, you know, when you're, when you're looking around, you're an archaeologist, a wonderful entertaining thought to him was always that someone had dropped this and like us with our car keys was looking around for it perhaps for an age and mm. eventually gave up and there you are 3,000 years later finding this item. 
Um, so I wanted to start off by asking about, you know, your experience of flint napping and craft and what kind of drew you to have that focus in your work for a time? My, my experience in flint napping is not, not particularly successful. We, we, um, <laughs> when I was running the course on, on the four A's, anthropology, archaeology, art and architecture, in that making book, we brought John Lord up to Aberdeen to do a workshop um, with the students. Mm. And uh, he brought up a supply of flints and he showed us what to do. And he sat there napping away. And before long, you know, he was making great progress. And, um, and we couldn't. I, I remember I couldn't even get started. I mean, we only had a, an afternoon, yeah. just two or three hours. And in that time, uh, everybody found it kind of frustrating because although John was doing his very, very best, none of us could really even get started on the thing. It was so, so difficult to do. And I, I found myself, I didn't make any progress. But, but I'm... And so, so I, I, I've watched people think that I, I cannot do it mm-hmm. for the life of myself. And, and, and I feel in some ways a bit of a fraud because I, I'm no craftsperson. I, I, um, I, I'm not much good with my hands. The only, the only thing I do, which I think is a craft, is that I play the cello. Oh. Um, right, if you come across Richard Sennett's book on the craftsman, um, he also is a cellist yeah. uh, and writes about that a little bit, not so much. Um, but, but playing the cello is something I do with my hands, mm-hmm. obviously, and it's very musical, it's rhythmic, it has most of the qualities of, um, of any other craft. It's very close to calligraphy, and then calligraphy is very close to many other sorts of crafts. So, so there's a kind of continuum that links many sorts of craft to playing a musical instrument like a cello there's no real break in it so that so that when i'm thinking about craft and what you do with your hands your fingers your body with rhythm with hearing with touch i, I always go back to the cello mm-hmm. because that's the thing the one thing that i can that I, I i can do i mean the other thing i can do of course is write and i think that of writing too, very much as a as a craft, um, something that you do with your hands. Um, so I was the last person to stop writing by hand. I, I resisted word processes till the very <laughs> last moment, and and then now I'm working all the time on on this computer, but I hate myself for doing it. Yeah. I, Pushed there, like like most academics, we've all been forced by our organisations, by practices, into a certain way of working. Um, it's now all assumed that this is what we do, and you can't manage otherwise. Mm. Um, but I, I, I really um, don't like the fact that I'm tapping words on a keyboard. I'd much rather be be writing them by by hand. So I think of of cello playing and writing as craft activities that are no different from, say, basketry or pottery or all these things that I've been thinking about and writing about. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a mindset approach, isn't it? So before we started this interview, I was telling you about um, using your, your thoughts about handwriting with my daughter just yesterday, in fact. And um, I used to play the cello as well. Uh, I still listen to Yo-Yo oh, Ma every, every so often. <laughs> 
um, and, I, and I have a yearning to go back to it. So, um, but for me, uh, one of the things in your book that I really liked um, is this idea of the architect and the carpenter. Uh, and for me, at least, a, you know, a craftsperson, a carpenter is, is coming from that physical, personal interaction, whereas an architect is coming from a slightly more technical point of view, yeah. so to speak. And they can meet in the middle. And, you know, good, good craftspeople have the technique and the theory and good architects respect the actual manual craft of it, so to speak. Um, but the thing that I'm really interested in is how craft, whether it's spoon or music or writing stories, whatever it is, is there's, there's far more of the person that can be invested into that than simply looking at it as a, as a technical exercise. So I was wondering about your thoughts around that whole interaction between craft and, and the person and where those kind of swap over. Of course, it's, what's right. And the, the, the word that I tried, I started using to try and understand that um, way of, 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 a, of a person going along with some material that they're fashioning into something is, is correspondence. And I, and I, I quite like it. I, I've been talking, writing a lot about how in, well, say in a craft, um, in a craft work, the, the the craftsperson is corresponding with material, and I, I mean that in the in the old-fashioned sense of like um, when you're writing letters to people, and you have a correspondence, and and um, <clears throat> as you write, you're thinking about the other person, yeah. and then you send it off, and then you're waiting for them to reply, and and this um, this simply carries on. Uh, so you've got you've got lines. As I'm thinking of. of People and materials as lines, as movement, mm. paths. Um, so another word might be simply counterpoint, the, mu the musical term. If you have two or more melodic lines, such as in a choir, and they're carrying along through time together, but all the time responding to one another and answering to one another. Yeah. That mutual answering to one another is what I mean by correspondence. And, and so what I'm saying is that in a, in a process of craft, You've got a maker and you've got a material, and they're going along together and corresponding. Mm. And that's quite different from interaction, which is a between, like ping pong, right? Like, you know, um, the, 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 and you can understand things in both ways. In, in our conversation, you, you, for example, you can say, well, it's an interaction, we're banging words back and forth. Um, but we could also say, no, actually, it's a correspondence because um, we are carrying along together. You're listening to what I'm saying. Then I'm saying something, you're listening. You, you're saying something, I'm listening. Yeah. And, and, and that, those, those movements intertwine mm. as, um, as they go along. If you, if you, if you yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, and, and that's so that I keep thinking of, of this sort of switch from a, what you might call a lateral modality across and between to a longitudinal one of going along mm. and it's this switch from acrossness to aloneness that i think is absolutely critical when you start thinking about how a person how you uh, are, are personally involved in um, a craft-like activity yes. the craft element means that you are continually responding to the material as the material is responding to you, and that—that that is a process that that actually go, can go along forever. You—you you might might say, "Okay, I finished now," 
Mm. But that end point is kind of arbitrary. Yes. Uh, it's not something that's given at the outset. And it can be very much a sense of, um, so one of the things I'm always interested in is the difference between activity and experience. So an activity is here's steps one, two, three, four, five, and you've created such and such. And I think there is value in that because when we're taking people out into nature for the first time, it can be that they just simply don't know how to interpret the landscape. And we've got a what I used to call demonstrate freedoms or show them the affordances of how you can interact. And, and when their ability to recognize those things builds, then it can become more free form and more experience based. Yeah. And, and what you're saying there is, is such a, an important idea, I think, in terms of we end so much with it is done and there's this sense yeah. of, or a footnote of, and I'm happy to be judged by it because so often when we craft things, it's within a social context and it's how people view that. And I think it's, it's a very different mindset to go into it thinking this is going to evolve and I might feel a finish yeah. and then pick it up again. And it's one of the most difficult things, actually, to decide when you think. Mm. When you're doing a piece of work, if you're drawing, or when to put, is this, what, what is the last line? Or if you're weaving a, weaving a text thread and trying to decide what is the last thread left to put in, it's, it's a real test of skill to know when enough is enough because it's not, it's not obvious. Mm. Right? It's like working down from... Sort of like this, <laughs> 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 but to it tapering down to a point, and it's very tricky. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts then around? Invariably, people are interacting socially, and craft has a various expressions within that. Uh, it's kind of recognizing that inherently, people are going to be looking at each other's crafts, whatever it might be, playing the cello, their handwriting, carving, which is why I like to do a lot of. Um, from your experience and from your research, kind of what different aspects are there within the, the social value of craft, if you like? Uh, that's difficult because, um, for, I mean, the first the first thing to say would be that that um, a fellow craftsperson who is familiar with the same practice is going to judge things very differently mm. from somebody who just comes along to a craft fair, you know, and wants to buy something, um, is going to look at, look at a, a thing very differently. And it's, it's actually, again, a good parallel with, with music. And that, that, that I can't listen to somebody performing work on a cello without imagining myself playing it mm. and, and responding in that kind of way and getting into it. Whereas somebody who has no particular knowledge of the instrument or even the music but say, oh, that was a nice piece, mm. and, and, and sort of enjoy it as a, as a complete artifact without really getting into the, the sense of, 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 of producing it. So, so, so clearly there's going to be a, a different evaluation, as it were, from the, from the outside and from the inside. But I think it's only when you, you do value things in a way from the inside that you appreciate the... The artistry of something. There's a there's a lovely essay by by Vasily Kandinsky, um, the artist, uh, a sort of spoof where he writes about people going to an art exhibition. All these bourgeois people all dressed up and they go along to the exhibition and and they bought the catalogue and and there's a picture of um, 
there are some cows in a field, and then there's a naked woman, then there's Countess so and so, and there there's a bowl of fruit, and they they look earnestly at these pictures and look at look, and at the end of it they can tell you, oh uh, maybe um, what the artist was when he lived, what style it was. Um, they can give you a full sort of art historian's account of all these things they've seen and show how knowledgeable they are. And then Kandrichi says, have any of, well, he says, why ever did they go? You know, have, have any of them actually ever seen any art? <laughs> because they're not, they're so wrapped up in the academic contextualizing of each piece as an object on the wall that they they don't never actually allow it to speak to them directly. Mm. It's already it's already wrapped up. Yes, uh, and 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 therefore, and this was quite a, a revelation for me. I suddenly realised that that the problem is we're contextualising everything too much, and that what we really have to do is going to allow things to speak to us is to decontextualize, mm. um, not in a scientific way of sort of taking things out of the world, but of simply taking off all this wrapping, this packaging that, that um, academics, critics, connoisseurs, marketeers, advertisers all want to put around things yeah. so that we can let the work actually directly into our own presence. Right, yes. Um, yeah. Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so I think there's some parallels with with something that I've been really reflecting on over the last few months, which is, um, you know, my background has been in you know, wilderness-based craft and, and primitive technology and things like this, and there is a there is a story which people like to experience still, which is about going off into nature and coming back. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, you know, there's certain clothes to wear, there's certain even knives and tools to be seen to be used, those kind of aspects. Whereas actually I've been really reflecting and thinking, I want to, I want to engage with things much more, like you say, in a, in a natural way, in a, I'm just going to go into that space and I'm going to explore that. And so it becomes less about going off and using these spaces and about really connecting with places, if I can trying to avoid yeah. rhyming there and making it sound like a song. Um, so you, you talk about, you know, a mound and this sense of earth-sky space and something incredibly mm. personal, which might not be appreciated by others, but is incredibly important to the people that are there. And I, I wonder if you could share some thoughts on that sense of connecting with a place rather than mm. simply, you know, um, recognising the spaces that you're using. Yes. No. Absolutely. And, and my first thought is that um, is that those places can be anywhere. Mm. Uh, so they, they they could be in the middle of a of a city. They could be in a wasteland. They could be in a rubbish dump. They could be in environments that that many of us might think are really crappy. And 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 this is quite important because, um, for example, the Education people, educationalists, are always saying, um, we must get these kids out of the inner city of Glasgow and take them out to the highlands so that they can see some nature. Mm. And that will replenish their souls and they will, they will realise how beautiful the world can be. And, and this is, and the kids go out there and some of them enjoy it, most of them don't very much, not any place they know and they heard it about, <laughs> and they come home again. 
But the message that that conveys to the kids is that where they live is crap. They live in a crappy place. We don't think much of it. It's horrible. It's ugly. Um, so we've got to take you somewhere else so you can see uh, where beauty really lies. But actually, those kids um, uh, know all sorts of things about the details of those places they live in because they live there and they see it every day. And, and you know, they're observant of, uh, even if you're living in a, not much of a garden, a rubbishy street, that there's stuff coming up in the pavement. There are all sorts of animals. The weather is always changing. I mean, there's a huge amount to observe anywhere. Uh, yeah. And the only places where there really isn't anything much to see is in some high-tech corporate environment, like a, like a bank yeah. <laughs> or some kind of um, sterilized skyscraper, corporate skyscraper, where there isn't anything interesting, really. Absolutely dull. But in any bit of sort of semi-ruined, sort of bit, bit of a mess, urban muck, there's all sorts of stuff. And, and, and the important thing then, I think, is to, is to celebrate that sense of being able to, to explore and discover wherever you are. Mm. You don't have to go somewhere far away to do it. And, and that then leads people to, to value the places they live. And once, once people value the places they live, then they'll be prepared to put some effort into looking after them and yeah. making them nice for everybody. Yes, and in some sense, yeah, in the sense of, and we can actually do that. We haven't got to wait for yeah. permission for somebody else. As you were speaking, exactly. it was reminding me of uh, my nature as a child was one ash tree which was stunted because it was growing in a tiny, tiny little green space, probably smaller than where you're sat right now in, in your room, your study, and um, and 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 everything around was was cars and concrete and you know, fences and backyards and things like this. And, and that was just this full world that we inhabited. Mm. And, and all of the things yeah. that we noticed, you know, the buds and then the leaves and then the catkins and the, the creatures that would be on there, this tiny, tiny little space, for me, is still that place I think back to. And it's the yeah. least romantic version. I wasn't, I wasn't brought mm. up in, you know, a, a woodland cabin in the middle of Sweden. I was in a, an estate where this one solitary tree was the entire world for us. And that then yeah. fostered my love of nature. And in fact, Chris Packham mm. um, gave a beautiful speech a few years ago where he talked about falling in love with nature from the um, finding a blackbird's wing behind the bus station where he used to catch the bus to school. So, yeah, th those mm. ideas of it is about the personal, not someone else might not appreciate what's really going on. And you've got this lovely phrase of the, the eye of the wind. Have I got, I've got that right? Mm. Yes, uh, yes. It's, it's about looking at the connections and the meaning behind things, not just the things themselves. Hmm. But the thing about the wind and, and, and the, 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 the whole theory behind that expression is um, that the wind doesn't go from A to B. Hmm. The wind just blows. And, and if it does, it sort of curls its way around and folds around the surface it meets, like the leaves of the trees. And, and, and if you compare that the vision, the point is that when we're looking attentively, we're not looking at, we're not simply sending a ray out to some object. We're actually wrapping around things mm. so that 
we think of vision then not in terms of light rays going in straight lines from one place to another, but in terms of the, the flow of our visual perception mm. in real time as it moves around and explores the world. And, and it, then, then if, if that's what light is about, then you discover that light doesn't travel in straight lines at all. It curls around in all ways. Um, yeah, it bounces around corners, which, um, you know, is... Uh, yeah, um, again, this sense of when you put yourself into different positions, you can appreciate different perspectives uh, and look at... So I, I do use the phrase landscape a lot, which I know obviously means you know, a shaped land um, by mm. human activity. But I think for me, that really speaks to the sense of nature isn't this far off thing. Like you've been saying, it's somewhere that we mm. are intricately involved with um and it's right on our doorstep it's not far off it's this thing that we are interacting with and we shape it and it shapes us so i was wondering what thoughts you've got on this notion of story and and the the stories we inherit and the stories that we create and and co-create together you know from your experience what are some of the the challenges of being able to understand that from the outside looking in Well, the first thing is, I think that we have to get over our habit of wanting to think that a story is not real. Or, or in other words, that, that, that we, we're a bit stuck with this idea that there's fact and there's fiction. And there, there's what's really there, and there's what we make up or what we dream up in our imagination. And, when, and, and given that opposition, stories we assume are on the fiction side. And so you say, that's just a story, it's not real. And, and so the first thing you've got to do is to get over that mm. and think that, that no, that, that reality is not simply there anyway. It's something that is continually coming into being. It's just like the weather, you know, it's changing all the time. Um, the real, you might say the reality is, uh, a moment ago it was cloudy. The reality is, well, it has to be sunny now. So the, the reality is actually being... Is, is continually moving along, and and um, and that and, and and since we are a part of that reality, we ourselves, then uh, we are part of that moving along process. So that it's not that there's us and our minds, reality, but 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 we are part of a reality that's continually unfolding. What's going on in our own imagination is part of part and parcel of that. So then we can we can think of a story as really continuous with the life. Um, one, one, one image that I've used is, is imagine um, imagine a length of of yarn. Yarn's a good analogy because yarn is also a word to use for story. Imagine a length of yarn and 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 you loop back, pick it up and move forward. Like what you do if you're tying a knot. You, you, you want to tie a knot in a, in a piece of string, I think. Okay, so you want to tie a knot, you look back and you pull, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that, that, but the, then you've got a knot, and, but the length of yarn itself is continuous, there's no breaking. Yeah. So you might say that, um, well, that going forward bit. That's life carrying on. That bit that I started from, that's the story. Um, you make a story by kind of picking up some life from the past 
and pulling it through into your present. So that so but but there's no no nowhere if you followed that line of string, there's no way you could say, oh, um, that was a story. Now this is life. Mm. Uh, because the two simply are well, one one is one is a continuation of the other. Yes. And and and, and there are lots of indigenous people who there's this wonderful book by an anthropologist called uh, Julie Cruikshank who worked with Trinket people in northwestern Canada. And the title of the book is Life Lived as a Story. And, it, and the book is actually life histories of three elders. But the whole point is that their lives are their story. Mm. It's, not, it's not that there's a life and there's a story. But the life and story are, are actually one and the same. And the life becomes a story when you look back and pick it up. And, and, and pull it through like when, when tying a knot. But that means that stories don't have beginnings, middles, and ends. So this is something that I often find that I'm arguing with, with, with literary types who go on about narrative and narrative structure. It's got to have a, they, they, they sometimes insist that if you've got a narrative, it must have a, a plot line. It must have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, and, and the one thing we've learned from endless anthropological studies Stories and storytelling is that that's not true. Mm. But, um, you have no idea where it begins. It kind of rumbles on forever and then never ends because by the time it does, everybody's asleep. <laughs> and, and there is one wonderful tales of you know, elders you know, telling stories uh, in the camp. You know, and they just keep going. They tell and they tell and they tell. And um, uh, eventually everybody falls asleep because it's evening. And then eventually the story starts falls asleep too, and everybody gets up in the morning and says, How did that end? I have no idea. <laughs> so, so, so they, they never actually begin like life. Life doesn't begin or end. Yeah. It just it just carries on. And the way you described it, it reminded me of one of my first tracking instructors. And I remember they said, Right, we, we, we want you to try and track uh, where this person went. And and the the idea kept coming to mind of you know, when have we got to the end? When have we succeeded? And they sat there, and this is a, you know, a, a Swedish, very good friend of mine still, who's, he says very little, it's the opposite of me, he says very little, but then says a huge amount with that. And he said, the track never ends. The person mm. carried on, lived their life, and weaved into other people's. And again, at the time, it yeah. was kind of, okay, but seriously, have we finished? But, you know, now I look back, and, and that wisdom is so deep. Um, a good metaphor to use is um, is a rope. I mean, if you're if you're if you're making a rope out of grass or fiber, you know, and you're twisting it, uh, and and you can you can go on forever. Yeah. Uh, but but no, every fiber is so long, so continually as you go on, you have to be um, introducing new fibers yeah. into the rope, uh, and 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 that's what that's what you do in in rope making. Um, and the end of where one fibre ends is all a bit kind of messy. It, it doesn't. But, but the thing is that, that, that these fibres overlap along their length, and it's that friction that holds it together. So, mm. so if you think of lives like that, um, not as things that are joined up end to end or back to back or side by side, but as simply rolled along together, and um, well, some give out at some stage, and other ones come in. But the, the process itself carries on indefinitely. I think it's a. It, I've found that a very, very sort of rope analogy, very helpful 
for thinking about social life, about conversations, and about making things. Mm. I mean, I could literally quite honestly sit here and listen to you for the rest of the day. Um, there, there's <laughs> well, so many you know, important ideas in here, um, but I want to be respectful of your time. But I did want to ask, you know, what areas at the moment are you kind of really inspired by or feeling challenged by or, you know, what have you seen other people doing out there which you think is, is really interesting and we should be paying attention to? That's difficult. Everything, <laughs> everything out there is, is interesting. <laughs> at the moment, I'm, I'm still puzzling over the question of how to deal with, um, with imagination and where human imagination, whatever it is, mm. how one fits that in to um, some idea of making things. And because there's this issue, you know, that, that if the standard view is you, you want to make something, so you, you have an, an, an image in your mind and then you impose it on the material. And if that's wrong, as I think it is, mm. then, then there is a question as to what role does imagination play in making things? And that's something that I'm puzzling about at the moment. Um, there is an awful lot of interest and discussion going on, not, not very much in my own field of anthropology, but, but amongst elsewhere about um, sort of rethinking the, the relationship between materials, bodies, the senses um, in ways that answer to our experience. So, and there's a lot of work that's going on of that kind at the moment um, in the arts, um, in architecture. Um, and, and, I, and I find that's, that's, very, um, that's, very, that's very refreshing. Um, the one thing that, that the, um, the work of imagination that there has recently been a, a, an enormous revival of interest in in material, mm. um, and, I, and there's also been a revival of interest in drawing. And I think somehow this, these two are, are somehow connected. Um, but, but the thing about materials is that. We always used to think of, of the world out there as consisting of objects. And it's taken quite a shift to say, no, we, we, we don't have any objects unless we've got materials. And, mm. and, and when we start about, when we ask about how do people relate to materials, we get to a quite different than if we ask about how do people relate to objects. And that's been a significant and interesting shift in perspective still going on. Um, but the other thing that um, I've been worrying about a lot is, um, and this is, a, this is perhaps an academic thing, but, but, but academics go on and on and on about embodiment and, and about how if you're going to talk about craft, you're talking about an embodied state. And, and, whenever you, and, and therefore it's in some fundamental way opposed to language. And I think that this is a big mistake. Uh, it, it, it ties into the discourse about the silent craft, you know, who, who um, is unable, can, can, can make beautiful things, but if asked to explain how he does it, is, is um, 
stuck for words, which I think is a myth. I mean, any craftsman I've known can talk um, for days and days and days, nonstop, about what they do and how they do it. And um, it's just that they don't talk in the way that academics like people to talk in terms of formal propositions. They talk in terms of stories and, and, and demonstrations and so on in a different way. So I, I'm, I really want to, to try and bring the craft of using words back together with the craft of using material um, to, to, to close the gap between um, the arts of the word and the arts of all these other arts, and to see if we can bring them together and, and, and to make our language a bit more poetic. Love so it. that's something that I'm working on this morning. Fantastic. I was just about to bring up in terms of you know bringing people together, if there's anywhere people can go and see what projects or books you're writing at the moment, but you said about the word poetic there, Mitch. Uh, I am going to put a link so people can um, find your book, Making, which I think, particularly for who's maybe going to listen to this, is going to be really, really fascinating for them. Uh, and deeply philosophical, but also incredibly poetic book. There are passages in here which I could, you know, maybe not me, somebody that's good at this kind of thing, could sit and read aloud and, and there's a real artistry to the well, world you've chosen. It's beautiful yeah. to read. It really is. But yeah, is there anything at the moment which you're kind of involved with, or any books that um, you, you've got coming out? Well, the, the, that making book dates from 2013. Mm. Um, so I've written a few things since then. Um, we had because between 2013 and 2018, I had a big project um, was funded by the European Research Council here in Aberdeen. We had a big team of people. It was called uh, Knowing from the Inside Anthropology, Art, Architecture and Design. And it would take too long to explain all we were doing, but we were doing lots and lots of experiments in, you know, in, in, in thinking about how we can, 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 can know through working with stuff. Mm. Uh, and um, so in the course of that, I, I wrote a book which was published in 2015, called The Life of Lines. I, I wrote a book about lines in 2007, that's yeah. called Lines. And so The Life of Lines was a sort of follow-up. Uh, and a lot of things, the things I've been talking about, correspondence and so on, that's in The Life of Lines. And it starts from the premise that we should imagine a world not as built from blocks, but as woven from strands and lines. Then, uh, 2017, it was actually dated 2018, I wrote a book called Anthropology and As Education. A slightly different thing, but, but one of the things that came out of our Knowing from the Inside project was that um, what the, the things we were talking about had fundamental implications for our understanding of what education is and how we do it. And um, so I wanted to write a book about that. Um, that came out just two years ago. Um, then I wrote a little book about anthropology, about that, and then I just finished the book. Um, it's just called Correspondences, coming out in October. It's not an anthropological book at all. It's, it's just a selection of, of short essays that I've written in response to most of the artistic provocations of one sort or another. Um, I'm quite pleased with it. The, 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 
it's it's again really a, a sort of philosophical kind of thing, but but I'm trying to exemplify in practice how we can do our philosophy, how we can do our thinking in and through engagement with stuff. And not by lifting off into some realms of hyper abstraction, but actually by looking very, very closely at a stone or a tree or uh, something small that and precise. Absolutely fascinating. Um, so October that's coming out. So I'm going to you know, put links to those, and then you know when that's when that's launched, I'll uh, put a link into that because again that fits in so much with where I'm going, and I'm sure lots of people listening to this are going as well. Tim, thank you so so much for your time. Um, I really really uh, very very grateful, um, and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. I hope, and uh, and seeing what else that uh, you put out there. Thank you so much. Okay. Good. Good. Bye. There's a significant health thing, I think, is a real takeaway from this meeting. And I think it really underlines for me again that there are various things that we do as practitioners as a mixed-faith practice that we should take advantage of. And everything from the way which we introduce craft, or the materials we're using, the weather that's going on, the people we're working with, etc., 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 all of these things have significance. And so as soon as we get to any sense of it being uh, performative or transactional, um, the fact that we're going through a predetermined process that um, is fairly unchanging, we miss a lot of the genuine, genuineness, a lot of the opportunity to have a meaningful impact if that's what we're setting out to do. And also a huge joy for ourselves as practitioners in this field because with the natural world being so changeable and being so subtle in its differences, depending on you know where we go on what day, that newness can be then translated across to who it is that we're working with and the way in which we're working with them. I think there's a huge shift between when we're in a classroom learning a formal topic and that's maybe technical in nature uh, versus going out into the natural space and, and doing the kinds of things 
where it's about building a community i think there's such a a fundamental change in the mindset or as i've heard it described recently in the uh, heart space that we're trying to occupy and so for me again the conversation with professor ingold really just underlined the significance of everything within our worlds and our experiences and the other thing that really stood out for me was is looking through rather than looking at and so what i mean by that is we have to look at things within the context in which they happen within the the texture of it rather than trying to step outside of it and look at it in a slightly abstract way so rather than to take a really broad notion like you know nature connection rather than just looking at it as it's a series of things that we can codify and go through steps one to five and it kind of happens it's about the the subtleties of the individuals their stories their experiences histories um who we are on that day uh, the weather there are all of these subtleties that means we we can never approach something as if it's a set process we have to look at everything as it's a journey and it's something that organically evolves rather than a pathway in which we blindly follow so those are some of the things that came up for me again from being able to talk to him and from having read his work previously and so in the show notes you'll find a number of different links to different things his book that i recommend to everybody is called making anthropology archaeology art and architecture and if you're in any way interested in how craft can become something really meaningful then that is the book that i would really recommend so i hope you've enjoyed listening to professor ingold and i really am interested in finding out what you took from it what your thoughts are so if you want to jump onto the website which is www.exploreandnature.com and if you want to go to the podcasts there's a comment section we can have conversations in there as well as obviously seeing show notes and knowing how to reach out and, and find out about Tim's work so thank you very much and I look forward to seeing you on the